You're listening to the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Jason McElligot from Marsh's Library, entitled Books for Old Soldiers, Creating a Library at the Royal Hospital Kilmainham, 1712-1714. Thanks to the organisers for... uh for a fantastic uh, conference. It really is always the Tudor Stuart Ireland is always a, a very convivial but friendly but also intellectual conference as well. But, you know, it's, it's always a, a, a pleasure to be here. So, the establishment of the Royal Hospital Kilmainham in 1684 was a big step forward in the, in the care of wounded and elderly soldiers uh, in Ireland, as, as many of you uh, will know. Uh, this is uh, the east elevation of the, of the Royal Hospital Kilmainham as it presents today. It was uh, established on a 64-acre site, uh, a purpose-built uh, facility. Uh, and this is a, a shot from the uh, southeast showing the uh, eastern facade there, but the northern uh, facade uh, with the tower, the steeple there, with the main hall, the master's apartments, uh, and the chapel with the gardens uh, then running down to, they would have run down to the, to the river, but in the 19th century the railroad uh, took some of the land. But a 64-acre uh, purpose-built site, uh, and many of you will know that it was consciously modelled on Les Invalides uh, in Paris, uh, which, and you can see the, the similarity uh, here, uh, in that those gardens uh, run down uh, to the river and the gardens are north-facing towards uh, the river, uh, very similar uh, to what we see uh, in the Royal Hospital uh, at Kelmainham. Uh, and before I started work on this, I've started work on the library, uh, which uh, has survived uh, intact. I hadn't quite realised just how important uh, the institution was in the social and cultural history of Dublin, particularly in terms of of welfare uh, in the 18th century. Uh, In 1703, the number of soldiers who could be housed in the hospital was increased to 425. But during the 1710s, for example, uh, there were still 450 men who were, who were in, the, in the hospital uh, at any one time, but there were a further 550 men who were receiving pensions uh, and living out. So there's a 1,000 men uh, and presumably their families in Dublin in the 1710s uh, receiving aid as part of this uh, institution. Uh, and here is a, is a survey taken in 1744 uh, of all of the men in the, in the hospital, and it's taken just after the Battle of Dettingen, so the, the authorities want to see what's happening. There are 634 men resident in the hospital at that time, nine months after the battle uh, in south-central Germany. 
The youngest of the men I've found, and, and it's hard to see here, but there are men in their 30s and men in their 70s, uh, and there's a list of the disabilities as well. So there's an interesting history to be written on, so what constitutes disability uh, and what gets you uh, into, the, into the hospital uh, and where the men come from. The youngest in 1744 uh, is a 20-year-old William Campman, wounded in the battle, uh, but the oldest is the 90-year-old James Dunwoody who entered the library, uh, sorry, entered the, the hospital in the significant year of 1712, and I'll explain the significance uh, in a moment. Uh, but there's one man in his 90s, there are 17 men in their 80s, and there are 94 men in their 70s uh, residents uh, in the library. So it is essentially uh, a very large uh, old folks' home or senior citizens' uh, home uh, with a, an infirmary, a hospital, uh, and also uh, what they called at the time uh, a lunatic asylum uh, as well, as they called it Bedlam uh, and the Madhouse. So it's an enormous uh, facility in terms of the history uh, of medicine in Ireland. But the question arises as to what these men, the 20-year-old William Campman and the 90-year-old James Woody, uh, did to fill the weeks, the days, the months, the years, and even the decades in the hospital. Uh, and one of the obvious answers is that they must have read uh, reading is something that uh, the older soldiers uh, must have done. Uh, and we know this because there survives uh, from the library, a, uh, from, the hist from the hospital, sorry, I'm so used to talking about libraries that I, I, I invariably talk about uh, libraries. There, there survives from the hospital uh, a library in thousands of volumes, and this is the distribution. So there are two distinct libraries uh, that you can see there. One is the 19th century library, and I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, it's particularly focused on things that you would expect soldiers to be interested in, travel books, war books, uh, adventure, uh, and so on, small format uh, books. Well, what I'm going to talk about now uh, are a whole series of books published between 1660 and the 1710s, uh, because this was a distinct library founded after an appeal for donations by the master of the Royal Hospital, Kilmainham, uh, Colonel Charles Fielding. And when Les Invalides was set up in the 1660s by uh, Louis XIV, it was envisaged that there would be a library uh, for the soldiers in Paris uh, based around religious, uh, conventional religious uh, works and popular works and so on. But there is nothing similar in the Royal Hospital Kilmainham until in 1712 Charles Fielding gets the idea to establish a library in the Royal Hospital Kilmainham and obviously in an Irish context the reason why he decides in 1712 to uh, have a library in his institution is because Trinity is starting uh, to build uh, a new library. So looking at what survives uh, and uh, the information that we know, and we know there was a census done in 1850, and the great thing, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard and difficult in this uh, city to praise the British Army, but the one thing they did really well was they kept records. So in 1850, there is a very good census uh, of the library, uh, which uh, shows that there were 153 titles collected between 1712 and 1714, comprising 244 volumes. Today, exactly 100 titles survive in 145 volumes, uh, and this is one of them. This is a copy of Cosmographia, Peter Halen's Cosmography, uh, donated to the library by the Earl of Pembroke in 1714. 
And each of the surviving books and all of the books which haven't uh, survived would have had this specific book plate uh, inside the front board which shows the emblem of the Royal Hospital Kilmainham above a blank space into which the identities of the donor were added as well as the year uh, of donation. And as I say, this is the the Earl uh, of Pembroke. Uh, and there are uh, lots of other people as well. On the left here, you can see uh, Dr. Proby, the Surgeon General, gives a donation. Uh, on the right, Dr. Pratt, the Provost of Trinity College. So in essence, the donors represent a cross-section of the upper echelons uh, of Irish Protestant uh, society. Now, in a history of a library, the temptation is to go into lots and lots of uh, bibliographical details, but I'll, I'll avoid that. You'll be, you'll be glad to, to hear uh, as, as much uh, as possible. Uh, but I do want to give you some overview uh, of what uh, survives, and it is possible to, to work out uh, what was also there uh, but hasn't survived. But I'm going to talk about what has uh, survived of those 100 uh, titles. The first thing to say is that uh, there are uh, 100 titles donated by a total of 62 different individuals, 59 men and three women, uh, Lady Ursula Fielding, the, the wife of the master of the hospital, but also Mary Countess of Drogheda and Mrs Kathleen uh, Hamilton. Of the 100 titles, only one was published in Dublin, uh, the rest uh, overwhelmingly are published in London, 82 of them, and then Amsterdam, Antwerp, Frankfurt, Geneva, Lyon, uh, Oxford, and then Haag uh, as well. The vast majority of the donors only gave uh, one title, but that hides some of the numbers. So, for example, Viscount Lanesborough uh, gave uh, a set of the works of Dr. Simon Patrick in 10 volumes, but I've counted that uh, as one work. Uh, 49 of them uh, give uh, one title, uh, and fewer then give two titles, three titles, five titles from Sir Charles Fielding, who's organising the, the appeal, and one donor gives 19 titles, the Earl of Pembroke. So I really want to get into the archives and see if Pembroke is known as a bibliophile uh, and a book collector, uh, what might explain that unusual uh, generosity. Some people gave books they already owned. So, for example, in 1712, Peter Waybrance, uh, who was a Dublin merchant, gave an exposition of the Catechism of the Church of England, into which he had earlier recorded that he purchased it in Dublin on the 27th of April, 1705. And similarly, the Reverend Richard Sinnott of Armagh donated a book in response to the appeal from his personal library, and we know that because he scratched out his ex libris sign, ex libris uh, Richard uh, Sinnott. But most of the books were new when uh, they came in uh, to the library. They're bound in a particular uh, binding, they're in a folio format, they're new and uh, they remain, as we'll see, uh, pretty much uh, pristine. I think what was happening here was that Fielding sent out a list and circulated it around the governors uh, of the RHK uh, and, as I say, the great and the good of Protestant society in Dublin. And the reason why I think there's a list which is circulating uh, is because what one might call the toaster conundrum. Uh, 
And that's be, when I talk about that, I'm showing my age here because I'm thinking about in the old days when people got married uh, and they sent out a, a list before the internet, they'd ev- inevitably get multiple units uh, of some items, most obviously the toaster. So, you know, the wedding, uh, the couple would get four uh, or five uh, toasters uh, and nothing of of something else. And what happens with this appeal is that you get some very strange uh, duplicates. Within the 100 surviving books, you get two copies of Lancelot Andrews' uh, Sermons of 1629. What are the chances? Two copies of Samuel Daniel, the, collect- the collection of the history of England. Two copies uh, of Ga- Gabriel Towson on the Catechism of the Church of England. Two sets of the Spectator from 1711, 1712. Perhaps that might have happened uh, by accident. But three sets of John Harris's uh, travels uh, and voyages. So that uh, seems like a remarkable uh, concentration uh, of duplicates uh, to have happened at random. So what seems to be happening is that Fielding has sent out a list of books that he would like uh, in the library in his institution and people have uh, given uh, books from their own library that they happen to have or they've ticked off on the list and said I will pay for this uh, for the library and that's where the printed uh, book lists come from. Uh, There's nothing particularly surprising uh, within the uh, the, the collection, as you can imagine, there's re, uh, strong focus on religion, uh, history. The remainder are divided between travel books, practical sciences, and literature. I suppose the most surprising thing is that they are uniformly uh, folio uh, editions. And the question naturally arises as to if these are the books that the great and the good of Dublin uh, thought that the soldiers uh, should be reading did the soldiers read the books and how uh, did they read them? Uh, occasionally we get, we get some signs uh, of reading. So here in this example, after Lord Santry has given this book in 1713, his name and, and the date are there, somebody has spilled uh, a bottle of ink uh, across uh, these pages. We know uh, after his death that the executors of Sir Charles Fielding's will uh, gave back 17 books from the library which he had kept in his own personal uh, collection. There are also occasional notes in the book. Somebody has scribbled into one of the books about how awful the diet is in the Royal Hospital Kilmainham in 1732. And occasionally you find little bits of newspapers that you can date to the 18th century stuffed inside uh, books uh, as uh, bookmarks. But in general, there's very little evidence of anybody uh, reading uh, these books. And I suppose in some ways that's not necessarily uh, very surprising. The large format uh, would have been awkward to read. And as donations of the great and the good of society, uh, they would have been jealously uh, guarded. Uh, The Royal Hospital Kilmainham, like all institutions associated with the military, is hierarchical. So there is no way, as I had initially assumed, that these books would have been read by the men in the library. They may have been available to the officers in the hospital, uh, but the men in the hospital uh, would have been excluded uh, from reading uh, these uh, items. And there must have been a more regular library, and we do find uh, some evidence of earlier books which we can uh, talk about 
uh, from an earlier period, which are much more popular, if I can use that word. They're smaller formats. They show evidence uh, of use. And this is perhaps an echo of an other library, uh, which the men uh, and uh, perhaps the junior officers in the hospital had access to. Uh, octavo or duodecimo books, uh, newspapers, magazines, ephemeral broadsides. And if they did exist, they have uh, disappeared. So the irony is in terms of those of us who work in the history of the book and the history of libraries uh, and, the, and try to understand mentalities through the surviving uh, books in a society, uh, that the books which are used and read uh, by people uh, and which circulate and perhaps which people are most interested in tend to disappear over time and that the books that survive and that we can use as historical records are probably those like these which were not widely used uh, and which people didn't uh, have access to. So we can't uh, assume uh, even that the books that survive uh, were ever read extensively or perhaps more scarily for those interested in the history of the book that they were ever read at all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.